This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, I am joined by El Grover Fricks to consider the various words for sacrifices in Hebrew. Before moving on to the second half of John 16, as we work our way through the farewell discourses. That's right. I'm so happy to be here. Not only are you here, you are here. We are recording in person, kind of a rarity for session six of the podcast, but... Elle and I are in the same room looking at each other. So very fun. We'll see what happens. Indeed. I'm a little out of practice with this in-person recording business. So sacrifices, we have not only words for like the act of sacrifice, but then the sacrifices themselves. Right. We're going to be going over all that. Right. So I'm doing this Hebrew mini lesson by popular request. It's one that Bema listeners send in with some regularity, um, asking about what's the differences between the different words for sacrifices. Um, there's a whole bunch of different words in both English and Hebrew that we use willy-nilly as per usual. Um, why are they <laughs> Is different? that the academic term for it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> willy-nilly uh-huh. usage. <laughs> yes. Yep. If you check Webster's, it's right there. Um, But why are they different? What's the picture behind them? And is there any meaning we can glean from this lengthy, complex system that we often kind of just shove against the wall and a little bit of self-righteousness like, oh, well, God was never really into those anyway, so I don't need to learn about them. But there's good stuff. So we're going to find the good stuff, Brent. Okay, I'm ready. All right. So first, before we look at the Hebrew, we have to examine our own biases and what kind of baggage we're bringing to the table, perhaps unconsciously. Um, So what's a sacrifice, Brent? Uh, I think my immediate image would be some animal or maybe a non-animal, if you can't afford it, uh, Mm -hmm. that you place on some sort of altar and destroy it or in some way, relieve your own benefit. Uh, your of, own ability to utilize it. Yeah. Sure. Um, I like it. It's functional. It's a functional definition you've brought for us. Um, in English, the word sacrifice comes from the 12th century, where it came from the Latin, and it just meant sacred rites. Um, as an R-I-T-E-S, which is very open, very general, not specific at all. Just, you know, holy stuff. Sacra facere. So that would be like dipping your fingers in holy water as you're going into the Catholic church. Yeah. Anything could be a sacred rite. Yeah. Baptism could be, communion could be, wedding could be, all of the things, right? Um, But by the 14th century, its use had changed to, and I quote, the offering of something to a deity as an act of propitiation or homage. So that's a big change. <laughs> that's, that sounds more like what uh, I imagine today. So Right. Uh, it's going from, you know, priestly stuff in general um, to a scarcity angled meaning, which you highlighted in your functional, like it needs to not be able to be used by you anymore thing. Like it's a sacrifice. So you're giving something up, right? I had to give up something in order to achieve appeasement. So knowing that that's what we're bringing to the table and that that might not not, not necessarily be biblical, um, let's look at the th- three main words that can be translated sacrifice or offering. Um, and again, not to overuse our, our uh, term willy-nilly, but it's going to be a little bit patchy of when it'll be translated one way or another. But our first one, and our most frequent one, is an ole. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> you can edit that out, right? <clears throat> uh, yeah. O L E H. We do have a presentation for this, by the way. We, we haven't do. we haven't done one of these Hebrew lessons in a little while. So if you're if you're not used to the lessons, we do have a presentation that goes with this. So you can see how at least the root form of the Hebrew is spelled and a transliteration. That's right. Or a transliteration because it's going to be different pretty continually because violation in Hebrew is um, a tohu vavohu, as my students certainly know. Um, but the root picture behind ole or the word Allah um, in its most basic root is it's something you're sending upward. Um, al just as a preposition means over and above. That's the same root. Um, if you're walking up a hill, you're Allah the hill, etc. So in um, Judaic thought or Hebrew thought, there's this alternate dimension that God dwells in. And we see that in the Jacob's Ladder story. He says, oh, this is the gate to heaven because that's where God is up there. That's why we set sacrifices on fire because their smoke goes up. That's why we have incense. It's going up. Um, we see this in the Tower of Babel story when God says, let us go down, right? So God is always up um, in Tanakh or often up. And when he's not up, it's always interesting. And so the first word for sacrifice, rather than having all of that scarcity um, layers into it, is just something that's going up to where God is. That's it. It's just something that you're sending over like here, have this. That's it. So you said that this is used in the case of someone going up a hill, right. which would be the, the verb form. But in this case, we're talking more the noun form as just a thing that goes up. Correct. Okay. Absolutely. Would you use it in the sense of someone like going up to Jerusalem? Yeah, exactly. Yes. Okay. Those Psalms that set, I look lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? That's the Psalms of ascent. And that word for ascent is just Allah again. Okay. Same one. It's, we see it for the first time when, um, Abraham is getting a, what we translate there for whatever reason, a burnt offering just again says Allah. Um, and he takes Yitzhak, his son with him. But our next word is a korban. <laughs> A korban, which always makes me think of that chicken dish. <laughs> uh, well, good, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm vegetarian, so it's not very helpful. Um, but the the picture behind korban is kerev. Kerev just means drawing near to something. It has to do with like your inward. Whenever in the psalm says my inward parts, that's talking about kerev, when we come near to something. So this is more functional, like not just something you're sending up, but um, it's a way that we draw near to God. Um, that one's often relatively arbitrarily translated offering. Um, and this is also, interestingly, a priestly word that uh, really only appears in Leviticus and Numbers. So whereas all sorts of figures in the text will say, yeah, I'm going to send something over to God, uh, Amazon Prime. Um, the priests specifically tie a function to it of we are using this to draw near to God. Does that make sense? Yeah. So again, this is something that we see both in verb form and noun form. Mm, no, korban's only going to be a noun. Only a noun. Okay. So Kerev can be a noun or a verb. Okay. So yeah, when someone is drawing near or or they are, yeah, they're drawing near to something, to God, to whatever. Yep. That would be a different word than what this is. Nope. It'll be, uh, it'll just shave the N off. Okay. Kerev. 
all all roots verbs are usually the roots um, and the verbs are going to be three letters. Okay. Which brings us to our last word. We've got mincha, which you now know should be a... A portion. A, a noun. Oh, a noun. <laughs> it's great. Normally, I stare at the ceiling wondering if you're getting what I'm saying. Well, okay. And now I can look over and watch you like slowly turn to me. Well, I was thinking about the first one, which you said was a noun, but it only has three letters. Uh-huh. <laughs> take, take my class, Brent. Uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe someday. <laughs> Oh, right. Not currently open for new students. Not currently open. That's so correct. So I'll have to wait. That's right. I have to have a baby first and then I'll take beginners again. Um, but the mincha is a borrowed word from Phoenician and Arabic, which are um, sibling languages to Hebrew. And it means a portion. Um I would love to have a whole podcast to talk about what I think the root behind the mincha is. Um because I think it really relates to Genesis 8 and all sorts of interesting stuff that's going on there, but we don't have time for that today. So um, this is more just the idea kind of of tithing, right? Tithe means 10%. Um, and this is the portion that you just give over to God. It's just what you do, evidently, in the mind of the authors of Tanakh. And so we see it for the first time in Genesis 4, when um, Cain and Havel are giving over their different gifts to God. With varying results. Very good. I have added it to our topic list for a future reference. So <laughs> Great. I'll look forward to it. It's a good teaching. Okay. So my next question, Brent, as we sit here and think about sacrifices, or I sit and you stand, um, are what are, in general, the animals that get offered? Uh, and why do you think that that is? Uh, I mean, it kind of feels like almost any animal could be a sacrifice, um, interesting presumption the, maybe not not any animal but it just it does seem like there's a lot and i definitely don't understand why you would use one animal over the other i think my my instinctual assumption is that there's some sort of hierarchical value to each of the animals sure if you're really rich you can afford one of the big ones and if you're not rich then you can only afford something sad and small yeah and i think that just comes from the uh, whatever gospel passage it is that talks about like, oh, even... Right. Yeah. Right. Well, if there were only bulls and oxen and rams and sheeps and goats and birds, that would still be a pretty dead landscape. Um, we do not see, even though we see all sorts of animals in the text in Tanakh, there's no fish sacrifice, even though there are lots of fish. There's no flamingo sacrifice. There's lots of flamingos. Um, there's no deer sacrifice. There's no cats or dogs, which Lord knows there's too many of um, in Israel. <laughs> there's no snake sacrifice. There's no donkey sacrifice. Donkeys are really essential to the story, uh, but they're not brought and camels and camels very good flamingos i don't think maybe as relevant are they in the text they are interesting okay. yeah so are dolphins the tabernacle is made out of uh, some dolphin hide yeah. by the way i mean i'm not completely surprised that fish are not mentioned in something like leviticus where they're wandering around in the desert although maybe they have access to fish 
Depends if they on happen what part upon of the a, desert. a lake or something. I don't know. Okay. All right. So that brings us to if it's not just all the animals or all the ones of economic value, which is the answer that you usually get. It's just whichever ones are their forms of currency. Um, but obviously donkeys and camels are also very economically important. Then why is it bulls and oxen and rams and sheep and goats and doves and pigeons? So we're going to look through. And I'm going to propose here that the key for knowing um, part of the whole point of these sacrifices, the point of these gifts that go up, these portions, um, these ways of drawing near to God lies in the name itself. Because each of these animals are actually named after their agricultural use, um, but also has a spiritual significance to them. Are you tracking? I am. Okay, great. So first one, right off the gate, we've got a bull. We're starting big. We're going little. The word for bull is par. Um, you will have a hard time tracking throughout the story, by the way, um, because we tend to, there's different opinions on how you should translate. Well, maybe this one's female and this one's male, or this one's a young one, or this one's an old one, or whatever. Um, and opinions changed over the course of time, and so... It can be hard to track down. But if you look for par, the word for par means broken into pieces. And that's because one of the agricultural functions of a bull um, is that they break up the soil crests. <clears throat> they break up vegetation into mulch, which keeps the soil mo moist and full of nutrients. So they're huge, enormous, heavy animals, right? If they're walking around um, as ruminants, they're breaking up your soil. So you're ready to plant. You aware of this phenomenon? You're from the Midwest, right? You know, stuff. I mean, I know a little bit. I don't, I don't know that much. Cool. Uh, my, my geographical history does would suggest that I would know a lot more about farming than I actually do, but alas, I can imagine. Um, and this would be like, this meaning would have developed before there were any sort of instruments to do any of this work. It would all be, you would basically be depending on the bull too. Right. You don't have like these giant pieces of equipment that go by my house every day. Um, with stabby stabby things yeah. or or even just a simple plow that you would you know right tie up to an oxen right uh okay so that's our first one we're gonna get back into the spiritual overtones in a minute here but we need at least two to be able to to look at that so do you know the difference between a bull and an ox um it's a different animal <laughs> I don't, okay. <laughs> I don't like beyond that. I don't know. Okay. Um, so a I'm not bull sure I've ever seen an ox in real life. Yeah. Interesting. I, I mean, maybe I have. <laughs> okay. We'll get you to the state fair at some point. Um, but bulls are wild and non castrated. Um, and oxen have been castrated and are docile and you keep them and they are what uh, you attach to a plow or you attach to your wagon. So getting a little bit further in our technology here. Um, and the word for ox is bakar, which uh, has the root meaning <clears throat> to seek after something, to seek after. So it's related to the word for boker, which means what? Boker tov? Yeah, morning. Morning. Very good. See, you're good. You don't need to take Hebrew. You're doing fine. Well, when you say it, <laughs> then it's like, oh, yeah, I do recognize that. Great. Okay. So 
immediately we can see the difference between a bull and an ox in the name. Um, So things that we are invited to send into God's dimension, things that we are invited to give over to him. We are invited to bring over our brokenness, our par, the way that we have been broken into pieces. What do we do with that? We bring it to God. What do we do with our deconstruction? What do we do with um, the all the questions that we have that we don't know what to do um, as we're ruminating on them, we are invited to take our seeking after and also give them to God. And it keeps on going. There's a bunch more. So ram, ayil, uh, is one of our many words for strength. There's a ton of words for strength in Hebrew, but this is the one um, that's related to el, Elohim. So that's interesting. Um, So if we're thinking about these words in terms of what are we giving over to God, if each of these words has a spiritual significance and an agricultural significance, um, ram obviously makes sense. They've got these very strong horns, which are what the what the word is referencing. We are invited to also give our strength over to God, which can be challenging for some of us who are raised to believe I don't have any strength, or if I do, I shouldn't acknowledge that I do. Um, I'm just little old me over in the corner. I just keep my head down and get my work done. No, in the sacrifice of a ram, we are uh, invited to acknowledge I do have strength, but do I use it to trample others? Do I use it to destroy? Um, No, I'm invited to send it over to God, give my strength to God. Mm Mm-hmm. A very relevant, relevant thought. Yes. I, yeah. Yeah. You were just powerlifting this morning? No, no. I was, I was talking with someone who, um, was, you know, diverting any, like, and it is good to divert glory that we might receive to God, Mm. but also God placed his glory in us. Like we are his image. Right. So it's a, it's a balance, you know? It is. It's a paradox. Uh, We have a couple more. Sheep. The word for sheep is kavesh. Um, Sheep are another ruminating animal, right, that you have go out in all of your pastures because their word, kavesh, means to trample down. So we're invited to bring our brokenness. So we're invited to bring our seeking after. We're invited to bring our strength. We're also um, invited to bring the places that we have trampled down others, or maybe where we've felt downtrodden. Where have we felt dominated? God invites it all to come together and be given over to him. Um, Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Goat means A's, or the, the word for goat is A's. Um, and it's specifically, some people think it's only a female goat. I don't know anything about goat biology, uh, about which, which goats are scarier. But a female goat apparently is more stout and ferocious and stubborn um, kind of strength. So we're invited to give multiple kinds of strength. Both are Strength that comes from being in community, which has to do with um, the way that the horns are twisted together um, on a ram. But also, we're invited to give to God our ferocious, stubborn strength. That's kind of a pain in the neck. What do we do with that? We also give it to God. A dove, which is the word tor, which is an onomatopoeia, 
as in doves sound like tor, tor. Um, that word comes from wandering in circles. Tour is a word for a circlet. So where is it that you feel like you're stuck and you're not making any forward progress and you haven't had any breakthrough? You just feel like you're going nowhere. We're invited to give that over to God. And then lastly, a pigeon. Very interesting. Um, the pigeon is the word yona, which sometimes we translate dove, which is interesting, um, probably because pigeons aren't thought of very nicely. Uh, and no. so it's much <laughs> nicer to imagine a dove. Uh, but it's a yona, it's a pigeon in um, in Genesis 8. It's a pigeon that Jonah is named after, our prophet. You know, it kind of makes sense if it's this kind of disregarded dove. I mean, disregarded bird, but it comes plot twist from the word yain, which is our word for wine. Okay. <laughs> because, um, not, it, not grapes that the pigeon brings back to the ark. No. It's olive. It is an olive leaf. I like where your head's at though. Okay. Um, the root picture behind our word for wine has to do with bubbling up a fermentation. So it's another kind of uh, onomatopoeia image about if you've got a whole bunch of pigeons, you know, they're all kind of like talking and bubbling their heads around and bobbing and waddling in circles looking for food. Um, so that is imagined to be similar to wine. So the question is, what are we invited to give to God? We're invited to give to God what has been fermenting, what's been turning sour. You're not just stuck. You're not just wandering in circles. You're not just seeking after something. What in you has been fermenting? It's not going well. Um, as a verb, this is used for complaining or moaning in Isaiah 38, 59, Ezekiel 7, Hosea 7, Nahum 2. Um, what what have you been complaining about? What have you been moaning about? We're invited to take all of these things. And God has room and space at the table and his expansive nature to take all of these things. And sometimes for all these different functions of the sacrifice, you know, if you think in the English, you've been trying to think burnt offering versus sin offering versus peace offering. Um, there's different options for some of those for which animal to bring. Um, so like Leviticus 5, there's options for a sin offering. So for you, if you lived in that time, you could think to yourself, okay, is this a goat problem? Is this a pigeon problem? What do I need to give over to God? And it's not just about the economics of the situation, the optics of the situation. It's about what have I been wrestling with? And then having it be a full embodied experience of seeing a symbolic image being given over um, to God and having it be taken and sent up into his dimension. Which is different than just a random economic sacrifice, right? So much more depth to it than I realized. Who knew? Yeah. Um, embedded within the sacrificial system is this assumption. You do have strength. Um, you do have brokenness. You do have complaining. You do have stuckness. But it's not your identity. It's something that um, can be sent up to the Lord. And that's what we're invited to do. Hmm. Yeah. So it's not. it's not the you know, the poor old lady bringing a pigeon because that's all she can afford. But actually the sacrifice is a better sacrifice than the bull because he's just got a hundred of them sitting around. Maybe. In, in some ways it is like, it doesn't necessarily take that away from it, but there's, there's other meaning behind it. And maybe it had to do, um, evolving over time with social class, um, 
that that became more of the reality is that the poor could only afford these certain things. And maybe originally the priestly class would help you out if you needed to give a goat sacrifice, but you Mm. didn't have the money for a goat sacrifice or whatever. So who knows? Who knows how things evolved to get to the place they were at Jesus's time. We just know Jesus was not pleased. Yeah. And all of these animals, we're talking about these, uh, like we put, we put first mentions, um, in general for most of these, although in the case of Ram, I put Genesis 22 as well, because fairly famous, uh, Ram appearance by a Ram. But yeah, yeah, definitely interesting to find that it is not an actual dove in the uh, in the story of Noah, but a pigeon. Um, much, much less elegant than I think uh, our artwork would like to depict. Lead you to believe. Yeah, if uh, you like that, um, there's this book called Debbie Blue called Consider the Birds, and she really redeems the pigeon. I mean, it's an amazing book. One of my favorites um, that I read from this year, both entertaining and devotional and academic, which is an unusual uh, little cocktail of goodness. Um, and she has something fascinating about each each of the birds that show up in the Bible. And I absolutely recommend it. Okay. That'll be in the show notes. Um, moving on to John 16 then. Yeah. Okay. okay. Here's my proposal. My proposal, you read as you do. Um, I only interrupt you very lightly. <laughs> Isn't that so kind of me? Um, and then uh, do some structural work or more academic. What's really going on here? What is the context? What is happening um, culturally here? And then do a little bit of um, a little bit of, you know, what's the what's the meat in here? Where's the joy in here? Where's the gospel in here? Does that sound good? That does. Excellent. Um... Yeah, I I was listening back to um, our episode that came right before this, uh, before we recorded, which is much later uh, in the timeline. The entirety of the rest of John is recorded as Elle and I do this episode. Um, but I I was I was reading and I just kind of like awkwardly stopped at the end of verse fifteen uh, because this this episode starts with verse sixteen. Um, but like the NIV has a paragraph break and a subtitle fit in there. The NET has verse 16 in the same paragraph as the previous one, no subtitle thrown in the middle, but this is, this is one of those cases. This is one of the few places, um, in this discourse where we actually have some sort of indication of the passage of time. So, you know, they're in the upper room doing their thing at the end of John 14, Jesus says, come now, let us leave. And then he continues talking. And then here we have the Which end I'm of... I'm going to address why that happens, by the way. Okay, great. Um, but we have Jesus talking. And then at the end of our last episode, uh, we finished at verse 15. Verse 16 says, Jesus went on to say, blah, blah, blah. So it seems like there was maybe some break in the conversation there, some passage of time, but they haven't actually arrived anywhere yet. Then... At the beginning of John 17, it says, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. And then at the beginning of John 18, it says, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. So there's lots of stuff going on here um, before they actually get over to the garden, which we have talked about slash we'll talk about in a future episode. Um, but yeah, just just to point out the beginning of our episode here is some like some sort of break, maybe, but uh, we'll tell us about that. So I sure will. 
I shall read. Excellent. Jesus went on to say, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. And because I am going to the father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Big Gandalf energy, by the way, just pointing out Jesus is always saying enigmatic things, especially about like leaving and the disciples are always either like, what? Or, oh, (laughs) (laughs) that's not really a note. It's just a sidebar. Uh, I like that. Continue. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me, which is all very repetitious. It is. It feels repetitious. Um, but I think one of the reasons that it's repeated here, uh, is he's quoting back to them exactly what they're saying, which can be comforting, especially for people who are wrestling with their faith, um, that Jesus knows exactly what we're struggling with. And he invites us to bring it to him. So they're off in the corner. What do you think he means by blah, blah, blah? And he's like, hey, it's relationship. Why don't you ask me? Why don't you bring your seeking after, bring your complaining, right? Yeah. Sacrifice teaching. Yeah. So I guess they quote him and he's quoting them slash himself from previously saying, right. no, what you heard was right. That is what I said. Right. Hmm. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So (laughs) (laughs) apparently uh, your wonderful wife, Maggie, has something to say about this. Um, I have my own things to say about this, but let's let her. uh, What were her thoughts? Yeah. And I wish I had realized this before with enough advance notice to actually have her come on and say this herself. But um, basically her her like what I thought was maybe maybe what this means is like, when the baby emerges and you get to hold your baby for the first time, there's this overwhelming flood of joy Mm. and you forget about not only the pain, but everything else. Mm. But then once that, you know, once that subsides a little bit, then you actually do remember, but there is a portion of time where you forget. That's what I was assuming. What she said, what Maggie said is that, um, the pain, when the baby is born, the pain, disappears essentially and it's not that she forgot the pain but uh it just it doesn't matter anymore because the joy is so overwhelming and there is new but different pain going forward there's soreness there's there's other stuff that happens that causes new pain but it's a different kind of pain so the pain from before is actually gone but not not quite completely forgotten, not inaccessible by memory, not in that sense. Um, but just it's, it's actually gone. So it's just not important anymore. So there's no point in thinking about it basically is hopefully, hopefully that summarizes her feelings. Yes, hopefully so. Um, I love that. Thanks, Maggie. Um, I appreciate that insight, um, that there is new kinds of pain and continuing pain that takes a longer time to heal. Um, (laughs) I don't as much love being reminded of that coming up on my due date, but it's fine. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> what I love about that, though, is that um, talking to survivors of abuse, talking about people who have lived through suffering and trauma, that certainly is the case. If they've escaped that situation, that pain has stopped. But there's a different kind of pain that still takes longer um, to heal from and that it continues on. Um, but that joy of being out of that situation has certainly diminished. So all of this, by the way, just hedging in here, women like your wife, uh, have something to teach believers about the kingdom of God. And Jesus sets the stage for believers to listen to their experiences, right? He's using a female-centric example um, in this story, which has also been used throughout Tanakh, by the way. It's a frequent motif, but he invites the experience of women in to teach the whole body of grace. So that's always nice. Um, also, Michael Pakaluk, um, which uh, he has a very interesting book. He is uh, coming from the Catholic conversation. Um, he's coming out of the Pontifical Academy of Thomas Aquinas. So he believes that the reason that the Gospel of John is different than the synoptics um, is not just that it's written later and blah, 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 the other things, but that who resides with John? Mary does. Mary resides yeah. with John. And they've had all this time. Um, Jesus tells him at his death, Jesus tells John at his death to take care of his mother, that church tradition goes, of course they're in turkey together and so they have all this time um with all of her extra insights and all of her different stories that the other disciples weren't able to witness or didn't remember and she has this added perspective and um this academic believes that um that explains a lot of the differences a lot of the inclusion of stories of women in the text are not in the synoptics and he says that that's why so just throwing it in um I did think about that, um, that specific connection between John and Mary or, or just the idea of John, um, you know, perhaps having more opportunities to speak with people as he's writing his gospel. Um, but I also wondered if it's just because initially it's like, well, what does Jesus know about childbirth? He never actually experienced that. I thought he was supposed to experience everything we experience, but maybe not. But mm. maybe maybe it's just like a cultural thing because... I feel like everyone in the community is going to be way more involved in the birth process and maybe not directly, directly, but at least more aware of it um, and much more open about conversation about it. So maybe, maybe, uh, I mean, or maybe not, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But yeah, I'd have to search contemporaneous literature to see how much this motif gets brought in. And I haven't done that. So I don't want to give a ruling on it. <laughs> Okay. Sounds good. Okay. Continuing on. Uh, Jesus says, so he, he brings up this childbirth analogy. He says, so with you now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. So this is patronage language and we're going to talk about that uh, in our third part here. Continue on. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the father on your behalf. No, the father himself loves you because you have loved me 
and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe? Jesus replied, A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Yes, or conquered the world, depending on your translation, which even more surprising coming from Jesus. All right, so this portion, talking about what's happening here structurally, um, I am pulling greatly from the work of fabulous people who have come before me, but specifically George Parsenios, who's coming out of Princeton in their New Testament department. Uh, Michael Pakaluka just talked about Urban C. Von Valde out of the theology department at Loyola. Raymond E. Brown from Union Theological Seminary, which of course I know you've already been talking about because you've talked about Book of Signs and Book of Glory. And then um, Burton Vistostsky, probably not saying that right, from Jewish Theological Seminary and Bridget Ford Russell from Cambridge. Um, So we can put their, you know, little bibliography in the show notes. I'm sure you got all of that down immediately, Brent. No problem. I I think I got enough. Uh, I will will do my best to track all those things down. Excellent. Okay. So we've got this question of, in general, what's going on in the farewell discourses? What's our organizing principle of this massive section? You guys have been talking about the Book of Glory, um, but what ties together these seemingly disparate elements um, in the story? Um, Last week, I believe Marty called this section in particular dense a few times. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe more than a few times. Um, So what's Jesus doing here? We're bouncing from suffering and joy and I'm leaving and coming back. And we had the paraclete earlier. Um, God loves you. That's always nice. But also things are terrible, but I've conquered the world. There's a lot. Well, and I think maybe Jesus acknowledges the density of it in you know, the disciples turn around, they're like, oh, well, now we get it. Now we see what you're talking about. This makes us believe. And he's like, do you now believe? Because you're about to all be scattered and leave me alone. Right, right. Yeah, I would love a tone read on that. Is he frustrated? Is he hopeful? I have no idea. Yeah, yeah. Or is it, or is it, do you now believe? Like, that's what I had to say. Right. <laughs> like that I've really said all this stuff before and that's that's the one that got you. Yeah. I don't know. We'll have to wait for the chosen episode. The inspired <laughs> work of the Lord there. <laughs> well Yeah, I don't know. We'll I don't find know out. if we have a, a definitive uh idea of what this should be. So we'll see which way they go. But being facetious, Brent. That's okay. <laughs> okay. So I know, I know, I know. Just you know just roll with it. Okay. So we have to acknowledge a cure all answer first. I don't know if this has come up um before but it relates to that side question about where did they go in john 14 he says rise let's go from here and then in john 18 
it's finally when he crosses the Keytron into the garden. Um, so we have a time continuum problem. So the immediate response in the academic sphere that's always on the table, and if you want to go here, you can be one of those people. I'm not one of those people. But um, Von Walde or Von Valde has this immense series of John, uh, volumes rather on the redaction of John. So he believes that it was layered together between the Book of Signs and the Book of Glories. There's all these eras in which the author or authors of John went back through, waded through the material, and added fat layers depending on the theological disputes and troubles of the time. Um, and he does really fascinating work pulling out these different themes and heresies that he believes John's epistles are talking about. Maybe that theory is life-giving for you and maybe not. Um, it can be a fun puzzle to track through the lines of responses to docetism and your other baskets of problems um, of the time. But I tend to feel like that's cheating to say, oh, well, there's a seam there because somebody inserted something there. I think it's more compelling to try to see um, if there is a single author who's trying to communicate something, what is it that they're trying to communicate? Vibes question mark uh yeah i mean definitely an interesting one to consider i've i've certainly been looking more at the timeline of john you mm -hmm. know as we've gone through this right. uh, than i ever have before so definitely an interesting one to explore yeah yeah it's on the table you can go buy those huge volumes and find out and what what's the like percentage i mean obviously you don't know an exact percentage uh tally but like what's the like how prevalent would would this belief be in academic circles um it's prevalent enough that if you're writing about john um you need to talk about that theory so it's not like the main thing that everybody's talking about. The main thing everybody's been talking about for the past five years is whether John is anti-Semitic or not. And they're still going on that one. So <laughs> that's the main focus that gets you published, I guess. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, here at Bema, our hermeneutic generally is to look at what kind of patterns and hints are we pulling from Tanakh and what are we pulling from the culture of the time. Right. And what is being said via the use of a particular motif, what's being said via the differences between the way that the author used that motif and what the original hearers might have been expecting. Right. That's what we do. Right. Um, so that's what we're going to do in this section. Um, first, we're going to look at Tanakh. Um, and this is talking kind of about the whole farewell discourse. And you can see how John 16 plops down into these, um, but it's not just confined to this little section. So there is a Greco-Roman genre um, called a testament. And a testament is when a great figure gathers together his followers on the eve of his death uh, to give this them is, This is a single word, A-T-T-E-S-T. -T -E a testament. Yes. No, 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 no. A no. space. A space. Testament. Testament. Okay, okay. Yes. Um, so he's about to die and he gives them instructions before his departure. Pretty baldly similar to what we've got going on here, right? Yes. Yes. Jesus is about to die. He's telling them, abide in me, all this good stuff. Um, so where do we have a great figure gathering his followers on the eve of his death to give them instructions in the text and Tanakh, Brent? Uh, Moses. Yeah. I would think. Excellent. So the whole book of Deuteronomy is a testament. Ta-da! Okay. So you already know, because I know you studied Deuteronomy all the time. <laughs> well, not as much as I should, I'm sure, but... <laughs> Details. Um, the books of Enoch and Jubilees also have um, testaments in them. So these are the pieces that define a testament. A, my death is imminent. 
We see that in John 13, verses 33 through 36, and we see it in chapter 14. Followed up by here are some words of comfort. What are the words of comfort in uh, this farewell discourse, Brent? Uh, The fact that you're not going to be alone. I'm going to send somebody to, you know, walk with you. Your advocate. Yeah. Excellent. Um, Then we usually in a testament have recall what God has done for Israel, right? So we have that... um, in chapter 14, verse 10, and chapter 15, verse 3, but it's more about what Jesus has already done, you know, Trinitarian theology and everything, but that is a difference. And then we have an injunction to keep the commandments, which certainly takes up the broad portion of Deuteronomy. Um, But for Jesus, his commandments are things like, again, abide in me, um, be ready, you know, all of the things. Uh, Pray that your joy might be complete, etc. Um, so John's portraying Jesus to be like Moshe via the use of this literary genre, right? Um, makes sense because he's a giant royal prophet, deliverer, and he's about to go away and he set up somebody in his place. Joshua is going to lead the big military campaign, but instead we have the sending of the spirit, Uh, which has a very different vibe than somebody who's about to commit genocide. Um, But I still like that there's a parallelism there. Well, and you and I talked about uh, what might actually be going on in Joshua. So, you know, but as far as the the text, like how it's presented, then yes, it is. It is quite the contrast. Excellent. Okay. So that's what we're pulling from Tanakh, or that's what I'm putting forth and stealing from George Persenio's putting forth what's being pulled from Tanakh. But... We already touched on this. Where is John presumably written from, Brent? Uh, From, well, Ephesus specifically. Okay. Excellent. What's one of the main things we stop and see when we're in Ephesus on turkey trips, Brent? Uh, One of the main things. Ephesus is huge. We see a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Um, What do we park in and Marty talks for a while? (laughs) After the library. We do. We do. After the library would be the the arena. So the answer that you were looking for was theater. The theater. Yeah. (laughs) The theater in Ephesus holds 25,000 people, um, which is a lot. Madison Square Garden only holds 20,000. So it was a big cultural thing in their city, in their community. Um, So the following two genres that I'm going to compare this to are from the Greco-Roman theatrical genres. Um, And I'm not trying to say that John intended this to be performed or that this isn't actually how the things happened, but rather John's borrowing from the cultural language like we do all the time to emphasize what kind of moment is happening. So to illustrate that. Just like you made a Lord of the Rings reference earlier. Oh, yeah. And all day long (laughs) until I die. Um, So the theme, the arise, let's go in chapter 14. This is standard in Greco-Roman theatrical literature and is called a delayed departure. And it specifically comes before a tragic death. Uh, So what this would look like if you're watching a play is there's all this drama happening in the ensemble, which we certainly see with Judas and all the whispering and stuff. And then like the lights dim to blue, the action freezes and the ensemble's like stuck in their spot. And then the protagonist comes downstage and he monologues for a while. And then after he's done monologuing, then everybody goes off and he has his tragic death, right? We would recognize that still from our um, cinematic language 
even though we're far removed from these particular genres that I'm about to talk about. Right. So uh, our first Greco-Roman genre is called a symposium. Do you know what a symposium is? Mm, I do recognize the word, but I can't say that I would actually be able to tell you what it means. So a symposium is both a literary genre and an event that you could go to. I'm, um, I'm thinking of the event. Right. Like you might see the university is having a symposium. Right. Um, uh, it can be both a literary genre and an event, just like we have courtroom dramas. Like we have all sorts of semi-fabulous to bad to fabulous um, shows that take place in courtrooms sure. and we know what those look like and we also know that courtrooms also exist <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> legal structures and systems happen within them um so this is the same thing it's something that happens and also that is a big genre of theater so in a symposium it takes place around a banquet after the food during the drinking so at a symposium, the point is you boast, you debate, you discuss philosophy. Um, there might be a level of debauchery or lurid entertainment. The host has to choose how much you're going to water down the wine um, for how lit you want your philosophy debate to be. Or how much you can afford, maybe. Perhaps. Um, I, actually, the poorer you are, the more barbaric you're thought to be, and thus the stronger drink you're likely to have. It's not very it's not very uppity to get drunk too much. Another paradox, perhaps. 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 Um, so, of course, in Jesus' symposium here, because this is a conversation after the meal, there's no debauchery or lurid entertainment. Um, only him humbly washing his disciples' feet, right? This is set up. Um, side note, in Greece, women are not allowed to participate at all. In Rome, women could attend, but it was actually illegal for them to drink wine, which was something shocking about communion, by the way, that that was for everybody including women. Interesting. Mm -hmm. They were not allowed to drink wine at all in yes. any setting. Yes. Wow. The idea is they couldn't properly, you know, the women folk, I guess, could not properly, um, they didn't have the authority to maintain how much alcohol was appropriate to drink. And so they were just disinvited from the whole affair. I suppose that's not terribly surprising. But. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Um, now, how often that was broken within a home might be a different question between a public event and a sure thing. But anyway, again, that's something radical about communion that we're all invited to it that we miss all the time. Okay, so what happens at a standard symposium as a literary genre? We're going to need some intrigue and betrayal. We see this in the Odyssey and Plutarch and Josephus. You're always going to have something going on in the ensemble. Again, we see that with Judas. He leaves dramatically. You know, Satan shows up, maybe, depending on who you ask. Um <laughs> You made a face rather than communicating with your <laughs> well, mouth. <laughs> you laughed on my behalf, so it was unnecessary. <laughs> Great. Um, often after a symposium, someone dies right afterward. So it's a contrast thing. You've got joy, eating, life, and community followed by death. At catacombs and tombs, you would have a death feast. There would be a painting of the dead person there enjoying their banquet. So this is supposed to make you meditate on the joy they're experiencing in the afterlife. There's a lot of verbiage and art around the depiction of death feast um, that comes into play with food, pomegranates, eggs, cake, 
fruit. There's always a woman seated to the left of the dead man. If you're a Da Vinci Code fan, this is your moment. This is your moment. <laughs> That's right. Ha ha! <laughs> I'm not putting a link to that in the show notes. Shocking. Um yeah, that's a that's a different episode. Okay, um, so the act of communion then that we partake in is kind of like a death feast. So it was a Christian practice. You go down into the catacombs on the anniversary of somebody's death, you have a big feast there. We go down to church and we take part in a death feast, but the focus is not on the food and delicacy. The focus is on the feast of Jesus's words that he gives us to meditate on, right? Instead of descriptions of all of the amazing foods that he was eating. We just only have the philosophical discourses. And this is probably why our communion, well, one of the reasons why our communion is only bread and wine rather than garlic bread and cocktails and lobsters and mushroom stuff with goat cheese and whatever else, which is a bit of a bummer, but oh well. Well, I do, because you said uh, in the in the cultural version of it, the focus is on the dead person's joy mm-hmm. and so I think in John 16 here, initially, Jesus says, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. But then later, he says, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice. And so there is there is still joy on both sides, but it, it is interesting that he shifts the the subject to himself Right. Whereas before he said, you know, the disciples would see him. Right. So I wonder if that has something to do with that. Yeah, I think it does. And I think it also, like the point, the place that their joy is coming from is in his words and in his return and in the sending of the paraclete, right? It doesn't have to do with the pomegranates. <laughs> that's not like the focus of the joy. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. So that's a symposium. The other literary genre is called a consolation and it goes back to the third century bce and it's a genre that's meant to combat grief around death so you pull from all these possible angles and schools of thought to help someone get through something often you emphasize community um it talks about embracing your fellow brethren um and how that's part of the joy and the suffering of death um or how you hope to see them in your sleep there's a lot of that like, yes, I'm leaving now and I'm going to go die, but close your eyes and you will see an image of me fleeting though it might be. Um, Jesus, of course, trumps that. He's going to actually come back if he says that. Um, and he says, in the meantime, the disciples won't just have one another to cling to and weep into each other's shoulders or whatever, but they're going to have the sending of the Spirit, the uh, better version of Joshua, which is nice. Indeed. Indeed. Um, So common themes that show up in Consolations that I believe John is using and Jesus is using to make a point um, is themes. It's often better to die, says uh, Ad Apollonium, which say that one three times fast. Um, But (laughs) say it one time fast. Yeah, true. (laughs) Um, But it's it'll often come up that it's good to die because then you're experiencing less suffering of all how terrible life is that's not in Jesus's rendering at all um 
Plutarch says grief and self-abasement are everywhere futile. So just get over your grief, get over being sad about any of your suffering. Life is suffering and you should just deal with it. Jesus never says like women who are in the pain of childbirth should just get over it because that's part of life and they just need to white knuckle it and uh, stop moaning so much, right? Jesus does not say that. He says the suffering is real. Uh, and it shouldn't be ignored and we're not going to just skate over it. Although there is something that comes after Cicero says unexpectedness makes distress worse. Um, and therefore we should meditate on the suffering all the time because, um, because then you'll be ready for it, which Dr. Brene Brown says is not actually helpful. <laughs> yeah. Cicero. I was going to say, I was kind of on board there for a second, but then I was like, oh no, that doesn't seem like a good idea. (laughs) Just think about all the bad stuff that could happen all the time. It'll definitely help. Um, Jesus says the opposite. Yes, you can expect suffering, but what you should be anticipating is joy. Uh, The Stoics and their consolations talk about rational emotions, um, soldiering through um, things that, quote, don't really matter. Um, So they'd say, why are you so upset about this anyway? Suffering is to be expected and it's not rational for you to be bummed out about it. Um, Jesus and Tanakh both never, um, they might point us in another direction, but they still acknowledge the suffering. Um, We are always invited and pointed toward better things coming, but it's not, shut up is not part of that conversation. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, And then finally, Agamemnon's consolation um, section is surely vanity when a man thinks he sees joyful things. Is totally the opposite of what Jesus said. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He says it's a quick thing to be suffering and a permanent thing to be joyful, not the opposite. So I believe that those three things John is pulling from testaments, symposiums, and consolations to make a point about this moment in Jesus's life and teaching. He's passing on. He's giving the commandments. That's our testament. Um, He is having this moment at a dinner to set the stage for a death feast, but a different kind of death feast, a better death feast. And he's... um, throwing over the usual themes and motifs that go in a consolation when we're thinking about death and we're expecting death and kind of marching in the face of all these other conversations that have been happening in the Greco-Roman world. Ooh, that's a lot of stuff. It is a lot of stuff. I don't even know how long we've been talking because I started recording early to do our test, but I feel like I feel like we've given people a plate full of things to consider for the next week or so. Could always shave off the sacrifices portion and paste it no, on. The no, 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 no. As you said, is an oft requested thing, and so we give the people what they want. Okay, <laughs> I'll try not to camp too long in our in our juicy stuff here that we have at the end. Oh. Not done yet. We're not done yet. Oh my goodness. That L. was part two. Oh, this is so good. Okay. <laughs> as long Are you as going it's for good. the record, L? I don't know. I just have material. Let's see what happens. I'm just prepping what's in the text. You guys tell me to do John 16. I'm going to do John 16. And we will do it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So we have these statements about suffering and joy. What life with Jesus looks like Um, reminds me of um, Habakkuk. The the fig tree doesn't blossom. There's no fruit in the vines. The yield of the olive tree fails. The cultivated fields do not yield food. The flock is cut off from the animal pen. There's no cattle in the stalls yet. 
it. I will jump for joy in Yahweh. I will spin for joy in the God of my deliverance. So again, we have this pattern of he acknowledges that there's suffering in the world, but he doesn't say, get over it. He says, in the midst of it, we still jump for joy and we still have spinning for joy and all the other joy words that we've done previously, right? Yes. So we can expect that from Tanakh. However... Uh, I was going to say the joy... Um, the joy words are in episode 248. If you want to go back to that and review those words for joy. Excellent. Okay. So I came from a background that says that suffering is good for you. Like as long as you're not currently burning in hell, you're getting better than what you deserve. So you should keep your head down and deal with it. Um, I don't know if that reflects anybody else's background, but I know of some people's stories. So how about you? How about you, Brent? Um, I suppose I know some stories. Okay. (laughs) All right. So some of this theology comes from Paul in Romans 5, where he has one of those Yoda sequences. Affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces character. (laughs) Character produces, etc. Yeah. Okay. I've never thought of that as a Yoda sequence, but I love that. Yeah. I mean, is it Paul echoing Yoda or is it Yoda echoing uh, Paul? Depends on when you believe the Star Wars universe was set. Uh a long time ago but, in a galaxy but long far, enough, far. <laughs> but long enough do they just mean 2005 because that feels like a long time okay anyway the end of that romans 5 sequence oh boy uh okay so the end of that yoda sequence is hope it's not resignation uh it's not just keeping your head down god doesn't call us to live under ronan bushes forever just keep being in labor forever um that it's not that this is what God has for us in this life and it'll eventually get better when you die and go to heaven or when you get raptured. So stop complaining. Um, that kind of theology creates a complacency with abuse, right? Sometimes marriages are just bad. Like, just give it time. No, if someone's abusing you, you should get away. Um, it can create a complacency with injustice on a massive scale. Um, like folks are still languishing in jail for crimes that have been decriminalized. And a complacency theology can tell us, well, you know, God has a plan for them in that. So don't worry your pretty little head about it, right? Um, it can be a problem on a smaller justice scale, like a church overworking their volunteers and running them into the ground um, and being like, oh, well, that's all right, um, because suffering, you know, is good for people. Spurgeon says, kiss the wave that flings you onto the rock. I'm sure they're fine. They'll meet God there. <laughs> I mean, maybe. <laughs> Right. I mean, and there are these experiences that people have that do bring them closer to God, but the empire doesn't get to say that. The oppressor doesn't get to be like, here, I'm doing you such a favor and enabling you to meet God in that place. The survivor gets to say that if they want to. Right. Yeah. But not not the oppressor. Okay. So this model, this theology only makes sense, at least to me, if God is not really good, if God's actually an abusive parent or the archetype of a cruel Victorian matron running a uh, orphanage in the 1800s, you know, Dickinson genre, um, then yeah, eat up your gruel and be grateful. If you're deconstructing, get used to living in the desert forever. That's what God has for you. Feel alone and communityless. Um But that's not the design. Jesus commands us to pray, ask, and receive that our joy might be complete. Jesus does not see joy as being dangerous or bad or something that makes your self-esteem be dangerously high. 
He says in this passage that joy is coming, answers are coming. Joy doesn't negate the pain of what happened before, community of survivors, where you're not expected just to move on and pretend that didn't happen. Jesus acknowledges that the suffering that his people will experience and are experiencing is real, but also the suffering doesn't negate the joy that's coming. It's still safe for you to find that joy. Um, Joy is our portion, Psalm 16. He would feed us with the finest of wheat and honey from the rock, Psalm 81. Even Eliyahu, Elijah, a murderer, our most emo of all the prophets, right? He didn't stay under the frozen bush forever. He still had miracles before him that he got to experience and be part of. So Jesus moves from that theme into this patronage language, this ask and receive. Um, and I call it patronage language because um, Central Asian culture, everybody has a patron. Middle East, I think we might have talked about in a previous episode, your patron is printed on your driver's license card in the Middle East so that like if you're in a car accident, everyone knows who to call to help you work through whatever legal insurance issues you have. They're the one you call when you suddenly find yourself in need of employment. You're part of their network. The things you do for your patron, honoring them, remembering all the things that they've done for you, showing up at their house first thing in the morning and ask, is there anything that you would have me to do? Everyone's got one in this culture. And for us, our patron is God. Um, is all the possible resources at his command. He's got cattle on a thousand hills. And so Jesus directs us, invites us to remember that he is good and wants to give us good things. John 17 is all going to be about how he desires that our joy might be full, not in a moderate amount so we don't get too big of heads, but full, right? Right. But the final plot twist that Jesus throws in here is one of Jesus's favorites because we tend to be really future-oriented in Christianity, and Bama's always trying to pull us out of that. Jesus is always trying to pull us out of that. Joy will come in the morning, we tend to say, when I'm dead or when I've been raptured or when this political figure takes control. But Jesus ends all of this by saying, in the world, you have affliction, but take courage, I have conquered the world. So the problem with that is he hasn't died or been raised yet, right? It's pretty easy for us to throw in some Christus Victor, throw in some nice atonement theology, some resurrection theology, and say, yeah, and that's how he conquers the world. But apparently he did it and he was doing it before his death or resurrection, which means that Jesus's version of conquering doesn't look like owning Romans on Twitter. His version of conquering looks like (laughs) fighting for the joy and peace of his people via healing, teaching, blessings, setting people free. That's the work of our patron, our father in heaven. So if we're going to do the work of conquering, it can't look like anything to do with nationalism. It can't look like empire. It can't look like violence. Um, It has to look like Jesus's, Jesus's methods, his favorite move. And apparently that's how we overturn the world. It would. It would certainly overturn the world if we did it that way. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. All right. Well, that's what I had, despite my mic betraying me multiple times. <laughs> uh, three times it has denied you. I, indeed. Indeed. <laughs> Petros, pull it together. I'm even, I'm holding up my, um, oh, whatever this thing is called. I'm sure that's an auditory delight for you. The, uh, the pop filter. The pop yeah. filter. Yeah. I'm holding it in my hand. <clears throat> I'm just thinking of more cheesy references. You built your mic on a on a bed of sand rather than the rock technically you built it well well but i didn't move it to your lap so you have you have uh done your own 
work there, I guess. I don't know. Whatever. I'm going to remind you that I'm eight months pregnant and let you think about your life yeah. choices to criticize me. I'm not criticizing. You. I'm just saying <laughs> we we did agree earlier that we would blame it all on the baby if necessary. So <laughs> I don't know. I'm tempted to blame it on one of these books is the iPod and the iTunes for dummies. So, OK, <laughs> um, it seems like a good direction to place some ire rather than on my unborn child. I love it. I'm I'm all about it. Um, okay, so Al, what's the what's your preferred way for people to get a hold of you if they'd like to? If you would like to get a hold of me, um, you can find me at elgrovefricks at gmail Excellent, and of course you can uh, tweet at Marty at Marty Solomon on Twitter. I'm at eibcb, and you can find more details about the show at baymontestablishup.com. Check out the show notes for today. We'll have uh, links to all those people and books that we mentioned, and. Um, Go back and review 248 if you want to think about joy some more. And It's always good. Uh, but beyond that, I, yeah, even, even before we got to the final part of the episode, plenty of things to think about this week. So thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We will talk to you again soon. Absolutely. Bye. <laughs>
There's going to be like 10 minutes of bloopers at the end of this episode. It's great. <laughs>